appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. There's numerous people running up the hill alongside It was a very bizarre day in so many... I mean, it was easily the most bizarre day of my childhood, the most unforgettable day by far. That bizarre, unforgettable day was November 22nd, 1963, the day President John F. Kennedy was fatally shot in Dallas as his motorcade traveled down Elm Street. There are so many young people in Dallas now. What do they think about the assassination? What are their feelings about the assassination? And the answer is, I don't really know. I'm Chris Blake, and this month on Texas Wants to Know, we're devoting four episodes to the 60th anniversary of an event that shook the city of Dallas and changed the course of our nation's history. In week one, our focus is on how younger generations perceive the assassination and how it changed the way we consume news. What was your story that day? Where were you? How'd you find out? And what was that day like at home? I was in the sixth grade at Annie Webb Blanton Elementary School in Pleasant Grove. Michael Granberry is a Dallas native and a longtime reporter at the Dallas Morning News. But here's how the day began, Chris. My mother had held out hope that we could miss school and go downtown with her to see the parade, the motorcade parade. And I was really hoping and counting on that. And my dad picked up the morning newspaper, the Dallas Morning News, and there was an ad in there, a full page ad that was a very hostile ad. It was an anti-JFK ad. It's uh, You can go see it at the Sixth Floor Museum at Dealey Plaza. My dad looked at that ad and my dad had this kind of eerie, almost psychic way about him. And he he said to my mom, I don't want you going down there. I think they need to go to school. I just don't, I don't have a good feeling about this. I don't think he had any idea what, what would happen, you know, what did happen, would happen. But he just felt kind of creepy about it. He didn't, he thought it was something that maybe a mom with little kids should avoid. The ad placed in the local newspaper may have been what kept Granberry and his mother away from the parade route that day, but it was another medium, TV, that would take center stage. The networks had cameras stationed at different places, but there wasn't a camera with the president on his route to the trademark. He was heading for a speech there in Dallas when he passed uh, the Book Depository Building. And there were reporters in a couple of vehicles behind the presidential limousine. But again, nobody had live camera footage. That's Dr. James Mueller. He's the associate dean at the Mayborn School of Journalism at the University of North Texas. The cameras were too bulky, too heavy. It took too much time to set them up. So when uh, the shots rang out, there was really only one reporter who could report immediately, and that was Merriman Smith of UPI. And there was just one primitive phone, not a cell phone like we have today in one of the vehicles. He was closest to it as a scene reporter, grabbed it, and sent the first bulletin out to United Press International, UPI, saying shots have rung out. The rumors started around lunchtime. We know now that Kennedy was shot at 1230, and I believe he was pronounced dead at one o'clock, you know, right on right on the nose, 1230 and one o'clock. So what happened, the way we started getting word, that's obviously lunchtime. There was, you know, we had single family homes near the elementary school, and there was a kid, I don't remember his name, 
he would go home for lunch. So he goes home for lunch and he comes back and he starts telling everyone at the school, including teachers and administrators, that President Kennedy has been shot. He was shot just a few minutes ago. So then we go to fifth period gym and the principal begins by making all these announcements that this has been canceled. This has been canceled. This has been canceled. I mean, there were dozens of these. Well, and I knew obviously something big had gone down. Then we had one more period. And then my mom picked me up, which she usually did not do. I would walk home, but she wanted to pick me up. And she was a great mom in terms of communicating the truth of difficult events to a child. She was amazing that way. I think she's one of the reasons, maybe the big reason I became a journalist, because she had a very artful way of delivering news, um, but doing so very sensitively and carefully as you would to a child. What was the average American's experience as a news consumer like that day, as far as when they found out about things and then how they were able to follow coverage as the night progressed? Well, in big events of this kind, a lot of people find out their news of word of mouth. Somebody else has heard the radio or had seen a television broadcast and then spread it to other people. The only people who would have seen the first television reporting, uh, which was Walter Cronkite at CBS News in New York, breaking into a soap opera as the world turns with a bulletin. So people at home, probably mostly homemakers, might have seen that and then perhaps called other people, or if uh, there was a television at some other place that people could have watched it. During the day, people could have picked up a, an extra newspaper edition. The television stations, all three networks, went to constant news coverage, so people, uh, when they got home from work, would be able to watch it constantly, and probably most people were watching TV at, little, at least a little bit through the next uh, three days through Kennedy's funeral. Mueller says the week of the assassination was likely among the most viewed news events in history, rivaled only by things like the Super Bowl or September 11th. The comparisons are really hard to measure because the coverage of events like this go on for several days. So probably almost 100% of the people are watching at least some of it at some point. What did most of the network's coverage look like over that span? Was it wall-to-wall for three full days? Did they dip it in and out? And what kind of coverage was provided? Um, It was pretty much constant once they decided to do that. When the news very first broke on CBS, Walter Cronkite had a bulletin. They didn't actually have him on camera because it took 15 uh, to 20 minutes to warm the cameras up. So as soon as Cronkite got the radio report, from UPI, he said, we've got to go to the air, but he couldn't get on camera. So he went into a radio room and read it on radio and they put it on the the soap opera as the world turns. And you can look up and see video of this on the internet, but it just shows the CBS logo in a bulletin. And then you hear Cronkite saying the three shots have rung out. And then they broke in periodically with more updates. And then eventually, then it broke into constant news But it was somewhat similar to what you'd see today with a large news event where they would have interviews with uh, important people, panel discussions, that kind of thing. And of course, in those days, network television usually went off at at midnight. It wasn't like 24-7 like we see today. How was TV news used up until that point? Well, television was a relatively 
new medium. Although it had been invented in 1927, it wasn't really popularized until 1946. So it was kind of feeling its way. But basically, television had taken over from radio as the entertainment medium of the country. And, you know, we're approaching Christmas and that movie, A Christmas Story, where they show the kid listening to Little Orphan Annie on the radio. And that was very reminiscent of how the radio was used. Now television was taking over that role, and it was mostly entertainment, sitcoms, drama, that kind of thing. For news, the network newscasts had 15-minute newscasts, and that indicates how uh, news was secondary for television at that time in 1963. Is it hard to explain the gravity of the event to people who weren't alive in 1963? That is a great question, and relevance is something that we we uh, often struggle with at the museum, trying to keep this story and keep President Kennedy, who is rapidly fading from memory into history, to keep him a relevant figure. Stephen Fagan is the curator at the Sixth Floor Museum in Dallas. It's a museum dedicated to the Kennedy assassination and is housed in the former Texas School Book Depository, where Lee Harvey Oswald fired the shot that killed the president. It's interesting. I was here on 9-11, and so in the aftermath of 9-11, those school groups that had experienced the horror of September 11th, they had a cultural touchstone that allowed them to better understand and process, I think, what they were experiencing in the museum with the Kennedy assassination. There was that, that connection which we've lost, of course, because now school kids coming through the museum today have no connection to something like September 11th. But even so, we try to contextualize the Kennedy legacy in terms of space and technology and arts and culture and social activism to draw these these connection points to young people so they can get a sense of this was the early 60s at the height of the Cold War with civil rights. This is what Kennedy stood for. This is what he represented. I have four boys. I am the father of four boys. They're all, I guess, technically millennials, uh, which you are too, I guess, right? And uh, my oldest son is, I believe he is 38. And the youngest one is, let's see, the youngest one I think is now 20, 27, 27 to 38. They have certainly heard a lot about it uh, because of me. I guess I'm different from most parents in that regard because I'm guessing a lot of parents of millennials have not bothered to educate their children about the assassination. Not that that's wrong. They just, because I've covered it and it's been a part of my professional life for so long, uh, I've told them a lot about it. Granberry says it's not just imparting the gravity of the moment to younger generations, but informing us of other details that added more layers to the event 60 years ago. On a recent flight to Cancun, of all places, where my son was getting married, I was sitting next to this lovely young woman who, very bright, and we got into a conversation, as I tend to do with fellow passengers on planes. I'm infamous for that. We get into a conversation. She was very smart. She was an executive. I don't want to say the corporation, but it's a corporation that has its offices in downtown Dallas. And I said, oh, you're you office very close to where Jack Ruby ran the carousel club. And she she looked blank and she said, what? Who Who are you talking about? She did not know who Jack Ruby was. So I explained to her that when President Kennedy was assassinated two days after the assassination, 
they were attempting to move the lead suspect, Lee Harvey Oswald, from the city jail to the county jail. It was a transfer, ordinary routine transfer of the suspect from the city jail where he was briefly incarcerated to the county jail where he would be incarcerated for a longer time and would also be put on trial in the same building, right? And this man who owned a strip joint, Jack Ruby, sort of leaped out of nowhere and killed him, fired a single shot and killed him. And she sits back in her chair and she goes, who knew? And I said, well, millions of people know. (laughs) I mean, I didn't say that, but that's what I felt like. But see, I mean, here it is. A bright young person who's an executive with a major corporation and who who did not know who Jack Ruby was, had no idea what role he played in this bizarre drama. And she kind of seemed to know who Oswald was, and she knew that there had been an assassination of President Kennedy in Dallas, but she didn't know who Ruby was. If all of this technology was available in 1963, how different would the media coverage of that day looked? Well, I think the format would be very similar in terms of interviews with the new president, uh, speculation about what his policies would be, reports from the various foreign capitals, all that kind of thing. But there would be so much live footage. You know, everybody on the parade route would have been filming with their cell phone and they would be uploading it to YouTube. So it would be just wall to wall coverage and video. And there's this expectation in today today of less privacy. Um, the Kennedy assassination was the first coverage that really got very intimate where they were showing things like Jackie Kennedy and Carolyn Kennedy kneeling at uh, the president's casket and um, details of people going into the White House and views of of the the casket laying in state and that kind of thing. We think of shared experiences with big news events or big sporting events like the Super Bowl. Was this the first of those in the television era? I think it is. You could say a lot of people watch the McCarthy hearings and things like this. But this was, you know, uh, the kind of event that's, you know, happens once a century, a president being shot. And then all the things that happened afterwards, the assassin being shot, and that was actually filmed live. And so this was something that everybody felt was going to impact their life in somehow, and they all wanted to see it and talk about it. And again, those events happened very rarely. 9-11 was another one, probably the first uh, shuttle disaster. There was a little bit of that there. That's such a shock to us. The next three Thursday episodes of Texas Wants to Know will focus on the Kennedy assassination. Next week, we'll explore how the event gave birth to so many conspiracy theories. The next two episodes will include an interview with CBS News legend Bob Schieffer, who covered the shooting for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. And finally, we'll dive into how the city of Dallas responded. I'm Chris Blake at News Radio 1080 KRLD in Dallas-Fort Worth. Thanks for joining me for Texas Wants to Know. If you like the show, please give us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I wrote, produced, and edited this episode with editorial support from Cooper Mall and original music by Michael Eisenstein. Odyssey's managing producer for national news podcasts is Myron Kaplan.